Greetings in Jesus' name this evening. It's good to be with you this evening to worship together. I trust you have come to worship. I want to thank you for those two songs. They went very well with what I want to think about here this evening. I was impressed recently in reading through the book of Acts how the Christians, the Christian way, the Christian life, was referred to as the way. The way. And it was interesting these two songs referred to wandering from the way. Uh, my mind goes to, well, I want to look at these verses in Acts, but first of all, I want us to think about when we go somewhere, we have a starting point. Your electronic gadgets don't do you much good to find your way if you don't have a starting point and a destination. We all start out when we travel. We start. How do you get there? You know, sometimes we go for a drive and I still like to drive around in the evening or Sunday afternoon. Sometimes we strike out and see what's going on in the other side of the county. Well, after being here for, nine, for about 29 years, you would think I would know my way a little better around the county. Well, last fall we were driving around, and I knew about where certain people lived, but not for sure, so we took the directory with all the conference directory and started looking up addresses. Well, this is where this person lives, and this is where this person lives. We were driving along, and where, where does this road take you? So we took that road, and we drove. And we were driving around, enjoying the scenery, and the next thing we knew, we were right back where we started from. And I have no clue how I got there, okay? Life is not like that in the Christian life. We're not just out for a drive. Where is your destination? Another thing we consider is how long it will take to get to where we want to go. For the Christian life, that's a lifetime. And most of us try to find out what the best route is to get there. Now, recently we went to our destination was a campground north of Horseshoe Curve in Pennsylvania, and I thought I knew how we were going. I made a wrong turn, and Friday afternoon in downtown Altoona, amongst a graduation crowd is not a pleasant place to be. We found our way out, and we got to where we wanted to go, but it wasn't really the route we planned. How often do we start out and end up places we don't want to go? Turn with me to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 9, I just want to look at a few scriptures here. The way, again, as I said before, was a title for the followers of Jesus. And we have that in Saul with his conversion. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, it says, And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. Paul could identify people who were of the way. Going now to chapter 19. We have it mentioned in verse 9. I want to slip down to verse 23. This was when he sent to Macedonia. 
we have Timothy and Erastus here in verse 22. And in verse 23 says, In the same time there arose no small stir about that way, or the way. Referring here to the Christians. Go now to chapter 22. Notice here Paul's testimony in verse 4. He says, I persecuted this way unto the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women. Paul was a murderer. And those that he was targeting were people of the way. Go to chapter 24, verse 14. We have here Paul before Felix. He said, But this I confess unto thee, that after the way which they call heresy, so worship I the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. The way. He was referring to the Christians. He was identifying himself as one of the way. Going out of verse 22. It said, And when Felix heard these things, having more perfect knowledge of that way, he deferred them. In other words, Felix understood a little more about the way because of Paul's testimony. Turn now to John 14. We have Jesus' conversation here with Thomas. John chapter 14, I want to read verse 6. Well, Thomas' Thomas's question was in verse 5, Thomas said, Lord, we know not whither thou goest. How can we know the way? Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. We need to recognize that Jesus is the way. And we need to be people of the way. There are limits along the way. As we travel, there are speed limits. As we travel, there are limits as to which, how far off the road you can get before something happens. When I'm traveling beside a steep mountain, I appreciate guardrails. I don't ride the guardrails because if you do, after a while, you will literally be driving a wreck. But we have limits. Again, where is our destination? Are we following the way? How long will it take to get there? What is the best route? And we're not just out for the ride. We need to follow the way. Shall we stand for prayer? Father in heaven, as we come to you this evening, we just thank you for your direction in our lives. We thank you for Jesus, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And Father, direct us as we go throughout life, that we can follow you, that we can stay on the way, and that we can point others to the way. Father, be in our service tonight. Be with Brother Richard as he stands before us and shares with us. Help us to receive what you have for us. Help us to apply it to our lives, to grow more like you till we get to our destination. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good evening. What a joy to be with you in this session. 
greeting in the name of the one who is the way. And may we be like, I think it was Eliezer said, I being in the way, the Lord led me. May that be our portion. Greeting the love and name of Jesus, the precious name of Jesus. Our Savior, our Redeemer, our intercessor, our advocate, our coming King. Yes. And I trust that we will covenant together that these sessions will be to the praise and glory of His grace. <clears throat> Appreciated selection of hymns. Thought about this prayer that we sang plant holy fear in every heart that we from God may never depart. I couldn't help but reflect a little when I saw the program on the 50th conference. And as I look across the audience, I've had the privilege of learning to know many of you. Of course, there's new faces here, but bring back memory. I think my first exposure to the conference was 48 years ago with uh, meetings at Mount Hermon. And uh, then about 45 years ago in the little frame building that was over here. And uh, I remember it was John Risser and Howard Rubaker. And uh, is it L.J. Heatwell? L? MJ. MJ Heatwell. Yes. And men of Runk, uh, members of the ministry that I remember laboring with. Yes. Oh, God has been good. The subjects that have been assigned to me for these two sessions are the danger of apostasy and the remedy of apostasy. I'd like you to open your Bibles to the book of 2 Peter, chapter 3. There are two verses here that I'd like to use somewhat as the theme for these two messages. Apostle Peter, writing concerning the last days and the coming of Christ, reminded us that we need to be mindful of what the prophets said. And he takes us from the days of Noah, when the earth was destroyed with water, to the future when the earth will be destroyed by fire. And he talks about those who will come that will twist the scriptures and rest the scriptures. But I'd like to look at the last two verses. He says, Ye therefore, beloved, seeing that you know these things before, beware, lest you, being led away with the error of the wicked one, fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to whom be glory, both now and forever. He warns us that we don't fall. There's two action words here. The one is fall. The other is grow. And so I'd like us to think about it as I give these messages. That we, uh, I'd like you to think about it as a person. I'd like you to think about it as the church you belong to. And I'd like you to think about it as the Southeastern Conference. Are you falling or are you growing? Are you falling or are you growing? He says, be steadfast that you do not fall. And the antidote to that is to grow. To grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The danger of apostasy. The word, the Greek word for apostasy is apostasia, which is found only two times in the New Testament. In Acts 21, 21, the Apostle Paul is falsely accused of encouraging the Jews to forsake the teachings of Moses. The word apostasy is in the English, in the King James is used forsake. The, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, when Paul speaks about the end times and the coming of the Antichrist, he said, let no man deceive you by any means, for that day, that it's talking about the day of the Lord, will not come except there come a falling away, the apostasia, there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed the son of perdition. The simple definition of apostasy is a, de a deflection from the truth. 
a deflection from the truth. Apostasy is the desertion of one's faith or religion, the forsaking of the belief which one held. Now, one of the dangers of apostasy is thinking that apostasy is something that always happens to somebody else. That's one of the dangers. That doesn't happen to us. That's, that's those people out there. That's one of the dangers. Thinking that we are immune to apostasy. I'd like to begin the message by looking, there's about five passages of the scripture in the New Testament that talks about the, the dangers and description of apostasy. I don't have time to read them all, some of the entire chapter, but I encourage you to open your Bibles and follow, and I'll do some spot reading. I'll try to let you know where I am. I like to read some of these classic pictures that give us the warning of the danger of apostasy. The first one is 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2. It would be profitable to read this entire chapter, but I'd like to begin at verse 1, and you notice he says, but there were false prophets among the people. He's talking about the Old Testament people, even as there shall be false teachers among you who privately shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that brought them, and bring to themselves a swift destruction. And secondly, many shall follow their pernicious ways by reason of whom the way of truth is evil spoken of. And then verse 3 and following is the warnings that apostates are going to be judged. Judgment is coming. Verse 3, and through covetousness they shall with feigned words make merchandise of you whose judgment now of a long time lingereth and their damnation slumbereth not. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into the chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment and spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing the flood upon the world of the ungodly and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them in samples unto those that after should live ungodly. And so he gives a warning here. It seems like uh, those of you who handle dangerous chemicals know that on the directions there's often a skull and a crossbones. And that means danger. And I take this as a danger. There's a danger. Verse 10 describes them as the description of apostates. He says, but chiefly, they walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness. They despise government. They are presumptuous. They're self-willed. And they're not afraid to speak evil of dignities. Go down to verse 15. It says, they have forsaken the right way. We're reminded of the way. They've forsaken the right way, are gone astray, and following the way, there's another way, the way of Balaam, the son of Bozar, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. Go to verse 20. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome. The latter end is worse with them than the beginning. For it is better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. Go to the book of Jude. Verse 3, Jude mentions that he gave all diligence to write of the common salvation, but he felt it was needful to exhort them that they earnestly contend for the faith instead of falling from steadfastness. Verse 4, there are crept in, there are, crept, there are certain men crept in, unawares, who before of old ordained to this condemnation, 
ungodly men, turning the grace of God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord that brought them. Then he speaks concerning, again, the coming judgment of apostates. I will therefore put you in remembrance, though you once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believed not. Verse 6, and the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their habitation, and hath reserved in everlasting chains from the darkness and the judgment of the great day. He talks about Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 11, woe to them, they have gone the way of Cain, which is false religion. They ran greedily after the heir of Balaam at the loss of separation for reward, and they perished with the gainsay of Korah, which is rebellion against God's ordained authority. Then he talks about verse 15. Verse 14, behold, the Lord cometh with 10,000 of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of their hard speeches which the ungodly sinners have spoken unto them. These are murmurs, complainers, walking after their own lust, and their mouth speaketh great swelling words, having men's persons in admiration. But beloved, remember, yet the words that were spoken unto you from the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 20, But ye, beloved, build yourselves up in the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. What a, what a challenge. And I was impressed as I read these passages of scriptures that most of these apostates were people who were once believers, who once were part. And on some, make have compassion. Let's go to 1 Timothy chapter 4. Third passage, 1 Timothy chapter 4. Verse 1. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly, in the latter times some shall depart from the faith. That's apostasy. Giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Speaking lies in hypocrisy. Their conscience seared the hot iron and so on. Let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Verse 1, this know also in the last days perilous times shall come. Men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful and unholy. Verse 3, without natural affection, truce breakers. That's people that break their vows, don't keep their vows or their promises. False accusers, incontinent is the lack of self-control. It will not be brought under direction despisers of those that are good, even having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. The last one, let's go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Talks about a falling away. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 1. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering unto him, that you be not soon shaken in mind or troubled, neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter from us, that the day of the Lord is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means. That day shall not come, except there come a falling away first. And the man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. And it describes him. Verse 7, he talks about the mystery of iniquity doth already work. And only he who now letteth will let that he be taken out of the way. Go to verse 10. He talks about verse 9, even them whose coming is after the working of Satan. He's talking about the apostates. And the power and signs and lying wonders, talking about the Antichrist, with all deceivableness and unrighteousness because they receive not the love of the truth. Now the greatest antidote to falling away is love the truth. Now he talks about deception. There's three levels of deception. It's possible for us to deceive ourselves. It's possible for other people to deceive us. But here in this passage, he talks about God sending people a delusion that they will believe a lie. You see, uh, a person that's deceived doesn't know they're deceived or it wouldn't be deception. And so how do we know that we're not deceived? 
How do you know you're not deceived? There's only one way we know. And that is to compare it with the truth, see. And the Bible says here, because they loved not the truth, God will send them a strong delusion. Now, I don't know if there's any recovery for that. Maybe it will if God's people fast and pray. But when God sends a person a delusion, and I encourage you to buy the truth, sell it not. Ask God for a passionate love for the truth. The truth and aligning our lives with truth will keep us from deception. And he says, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. Well, those scriptures, I wanted to help you to understand them and take them into your heart and we think about apostasy. Well, what are some dangers of apostasy? I think apostasy begins at the closet door. When we lose a passionate prayer life. Jesus said, when thou prayest, go into the closet. There is a place for closet prayer. A place where you're all alone. And then he said, when you get into the closet, then shut the door. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes it takes me a while to get the door shut. Get the door shut. Empty your mind of all things. And then he says, meet the Father. That's a sequence. Get into the closet. Shut the door. And then meet the Father. And one of the dangers of apostasy is when we don't get to the closet, and when we get there, we don't get the door shut. And we don't even meet the Father. And Jesus said, get into the closet, get the door shut, pray to thy Father, and thy Father will reward thee openly. I suggest to you tonight that when the Father rewards a person openly, they are not falling from their steadfastness, but they are growing in grace. It's the Father's grace that we need. It's the grace of God, the help of God, the goodness of God. Meet the Father. Pray for grace. Pray for help. Meet the Father. Very secondly, very closely related to that is the loss of an all-compassing passing love for God. A lawyer came to Jesus one day, and, and a lawyer was used to laws. He studied law. The Old Testament people were used to laws, and they had 600 and I think 13 laws. There was the Ten Commandments, another 623, I think. And then there were 613 other laws besides the Ten Commandments. And I think his mind was saying, well, look, Jesus, we're never going to get around to keeping them all. So why don't we focus on what's the most important? And so the lawyer asked Jesus, said, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, the greatest commandment is this, that thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and all thy mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Then he quickly said, the second is like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And then on these two hang all the law and the commandments. He's saying, if you keep these two, you will be keeping all the rest. And so when we lose that love for God, that passionate love for God, a desire for God, The church at Ephesus says left their first love. That was they forsook it. They laid it aside to leave it. Love for God includes a love for the truth. A love for God includes a love for doctrine. For those of you in the ministry, I heard a brother say a couple years ago that any doctrine that is not taught at least once every two years will eventually be lost. Any doctrine that's not taught at least once every two years will eventually be lost. The third thing I suggest, and these are not all, I'm sure, but compromise. 
A danger of apostasy is compromising the truth. The winds of compromise are increasing. Balaam, an example of a compromiser. The Bible says he taught Israel to sin. He knew God's will. He deliberately went against God's will. He disregarded God's will. And he taught Israel to sin. How did he teach Israel to sin? He says, forget about your separation. Forget about your, God's warning about moral purity and intermarriage. The Bible calls him a prophet. Hard to figure Balaam out. But Balaam come to the end of his life, he said, let me die the death of the righteous. Let my last end be like his. I tell you, my friends, if we want to die the, right, the death of the righteous, we must live the life of the righteous. The winds of compromise. I don't know if you've all been around that long, but sometimes you face issues in the church. And I had a young person tell me, say, where did you ever come from, the dark ages? See, the winds of compromise are blowing hard. Now, Nehemiah was an example of one who didn't do a compromise. Remember Nehemiah, Sanballat and Tobiah were their enemies, and they tried to dissuade them and discourage them, and they just kept on working, had a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other hand. I don't know how a one-hand mason works, but uh, anyhow, they kept at it, and then they said, well, listen, why don't you take a break? You need to take a break and come down here, and we ought to have a dialogue. We want to talk with you a little bit. Well, where do you want to meet? Well, well down here at this little place called Ono. And Nehemiah had answered. He said, oh, no. Oh, no, we're not coming down there. I'm too busy. He said, I'm involved in the Lord's work. I don't have time to dialogue with the enemy. He knew that they wanted him to compromise. Another danger that I see, and to me this is a biggie, is social media. What's taking place with those cell phones that we have and the social media, there's a, there's a psychological bonding taking place among our people that people are developing a social bond with people who do not believe like they believe. And they're making a bond that's closer to people like that than people sitting next to them in their church. And if we don't get a hold of this, you can just kiss separation goodbye. Because there's a bonding that's taking place, a psychological bonding that's affecting people on, on how they think. Now, I, I'm not involved in social media, but I understand that there's these different names, and I'm going to name them, but they have a place where you can be liked or disliked. Now, everybody likes to be liked. Don't we? You like to be liked? I like to be liked. You know, as we get older, we like to die being liked. And I think that's why some older ordained men have compromised in their older ministry because they like to die being liked. And so naturally we like to be liked. And so if this person has this opinion and even contrary to what the Bible speaks and you like to be liked, you like them to like you, then you have a tendency to take your thinking and agree with what they're saying because I want to be liked. Another one that I think about is I call it gradualism. Incremental, little by little, changes of life and practice. Apostasy very seldom happens fast. It's little by little by little. And you've seen those things. Uh, you know, take for instance what has happened in a lot of churches in relation to the head covering. You know, it, uh, it starts getting smaller and smaller and then after a while it blows away. You know, uh, there are people now in even so-called conservative circles that as long as they have something on your head, 
it's considered a covering. No spiritual significance. There are some ladies that wear what I put in my back pocket for a handkerchief and call it a covering. Or even a little band, say. It's little by little by little. Gradualism. You all know the story about the college students and the frog. How they cooked this goose gradually. A second, a, a sixth one that I have is indecisiveness. Failure to grapple with issues in a meaningful way. Now, there's a danger for both different kinds of structures of church life, whether it's the conference level, whether it's the individual congregational level. I've been exposed to different kinds of church structure and uh, it, it seems like uh, as you move away from the conference level uh, there has to be some direction given and so I, I, I know closely of situations where there's a situation comes up and so we uh, have a brother's meeting and uh, we discuss it and we go around the table and well, well, how, how do you feel about this and how do you feel about this and so everybody expresses their feelings well uh, that's that's good you're talking about it we need to pray about it and we'll, next time we'll talk about it and we do the same thing how are you feeling about it by now and I've seen this go on for six months or more and no decisions made. And by that time, half the church is doing it. So it's no longer an issue. Indecisiveness. I remember years ago, Caterpillar used to advertise. There are no easy solutions, just tough decisions. And a lot of the decisions that we made are tough, but they need to be made. Being indecisive will lead to apostasy. The seventh one I have, we've read about, and that is false teaching. I've chosen a number of areas. In fact, there's eight areas I've chosen in relation to false teaching, the danger of apostasy. Heresy is the disunion. It's a parting from truth or sound doctrine. Someone has said that heresy is the result of one aspect of truth emphasized at the expense of others. And that, that is true. Sometimes if one aspect of truth that's emphasized at the expense of others. The opposite of that is what we call sound doctrine. 2 Timothy 4.3 says the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But after their own lust, they shall heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. First Timothy 6, 3, if any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus and the doctrine which is according to godliness. He's proud, he's doting about questions and strife of words, envy, reeling, evil surmisings, perverse disputing of men of corrupt mind, destitute of the truth, Supposing that gain is godliness. Holding fast. First Timothy 1. Holding fast the faithful words that you've been taught. Speak thou that things become sound doctrine. The challenge for us is what is the antidote for sound doctrine? Well, first, Second Timothy 3.14 says continue. Continue in the things which thou hast learned and beard assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. We need to be careful who we listen to. We need to be careful the books we read. Knowing them from whom you've learned them. And that from a child you've known the Holy Scriptures. Notice the place, the centrality of the Scriptures. They're able to make thee wise of salvation. And then the famous well-known Scripture, all Scriptures given by inspiration of God that the man of God may be perfect. One of the heresies that's around 
is the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. God wants you healthy. He wants you wealthy. Uh, name it and claim it. Faith. Faith healers. All things are possible to him that believe. 1 Timothy 6, 5, Paul talks about perverse disputings of men's corrupt minds, destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness. Someone gave me a tape some time ago on these prosperity preachers, and they said, if, now if you always can, he said, uh, uh, you buy yourself a Cadillac or a Lincoln, but a Cadillac would be better, and, and don't put it in the garage, put it in the driveway. So the people will look at it, and they will be jealous of you, and they'll want to be a Christian too. Supposing that gain is godliness. Health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. Another danger is the minimizing the importance of ch church structure. Reaction. Bible talks about authority, and there's been abuses of authority. And there's been some reaction to the abuses. So I'd like to look at 2 Peter chapter 2, if you will, in verse 10. It says, chiefly them that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise government. Presumptuous are they self-willed, not afraid to speak evil of dignities. Likewise, these filthy dreamers defile the flesh, despise dominion, those who rule, and speak evil of dignities. I, I think, I thought about David. When Saul was after his life and he had the chance to kill Saul, and David said, I won't touch the Lord's anointed. What a, what a difference. Now, as I think about this authority, issue. A few years ago, Brother Melvin Lehman wrote an article entitled New Conservatism. Maybe some of you read it. And uh, it was what he was gathering from the students, the faith builders in this generation that he's, he talked about, he called it a new conservatism. Now, if there's a new conservatism, there has to be an old conservatism and a comparison. And his point number two said this, that new conservatives reject authoritarianism without relationship as a means of church discipline and maintenance of traditional practices. It says they reject authoritarianism without relationship. Now, if you've been in the ministry any length of time, you will discover that any exercise of authority by the carnal mind is called authoritarianism. I have a question. Did Adam and Eve reject God's authority because of a lack of relationship? He went on further to say that the new conservatism, instead of authority, authoritarianism, now that authoritarianism is the abuse of authority, but that's a relative term that people use it. But he talks about dialogue and diversity. I've added a third one and that's division. Divinely instituted authority is being replaced. Dialogue replaces doctrine, diversity replaces unity, and division will replace solidarity. There are other movements, and the recent writer that I read called the, the Intentionalist Movement. We have a movement that's taking a lot of people. Uh, they use the word kingdom fellowship. It's not an organization, but it's an attempt to resurrect what I consider the flawed charity movement. The emphasis on the kingdom. 
Very little to say about the church. Jesus didn't say, I'll build my church. He said, he didn't say, I'll build my kingdom. He said, I'll build my church. He's going to build his church. But very little said about the church. He talks about the kingdom. Well, Jesus is not going to build the kingdom. He's going to inherit the kingdom. Amen? Thank you. Now, structure. I want to talk about structure. See, uh, some of these movements that have happened have been a reaction to what they thought was too much structure, too much church authority. But structure is essential in any organization. A home without structure is chaos. Any business without structure is doomed for failure. And so why are we reacting to structure? I say structure is essential. Organization without structure is like a body without bones. And structure without life is a corpse. I know of some of this. I'm closely know whereof I speak. I know of a so-called church. They want no ordained leadership. They don't even have church, but once a month, they have small families, three, four families get together and dialogue. And then once a month, they all get together and dialogue. Very little place for preaching of the word. Few standards of life and conduct. I tell you, my friends, very few of these kind of churches are going to last more than one generation. The next one I'd like to talk about, I'm calling it Reformed Theology. Calvinism, Protestantism, unconditional eternal security, I'm not going to take Tom much about that. The loss of literal interpretation of the scripture. I remember Lloyd Hartler saying, if the literal sense makes common sense, it's nonsense to make any other sense. That's good advice. Once in a while I hear a preacher say, now what God was trying to say here was, you know, as if God didn't know how to say what he wanted to say. And if God didn't know how to say what he wanted to say, who am I to say what he wanted to say? And so as we move away from a literal interpretation of the scripture, that lays a bedrock for apostasy. Replacement theology. Augustine, the honored hero of Reformed theology, the father of Catholicism, introduced, reformed, introduced replacement theology. God's finished with Israel. The promise God made to Israel had been transferred to the church. Another is, I'm just calling this sin and salvation. I'm just going to touch on these, but the teaching in Reformed theology is what is called imputed righteousness. And the Bible uses that word in Romans 4. Imputed, used a number of times. Now, what the teaching is, is that when you become a believer, that God, Christ's righteousness is imputed to you. It's this forensic experience that takes place in the books of heaven that God looks at you. He doesn't see your sin. All he sees is Christ and his righteousness. And so how you live really doesn't matter because all your righteousness is filthy rags. Now, I believe in imputed righteousness, but I believe that it is intrinsic. And that is when you take Christ into your heart, into your life, and you allow the Holy Spirit to direct your life, that what comes out of your life will be righteous. It's imparted righteousness, not imputed righteousness. And I challenge anybody to show me where in the Bible that it says that Christ's righteousness is imputed to the believer. It talks about Abraham's faith was imputed to him for righteousness. But that kind of teaching leads to apostasy because it really doesn't matter how you live because all of your righteousness is filthy rags in God's sight. And all he sees, he sees you as holy. He has these stained glass, blood-stained glasses that he looks through and the blood of Jesus Christ filters out all your sin and he sees you as perfect.
The word count, reckoned, and imputed, used 11 times in Romans chapter 4. Along with that is an imbalance of emphasis concerning the will of God and the will of man. We need to recognize God's sovereignty. A lot of things we can't understand. But you can go down and have an imbalance of emphasis on God's sovereignty. You have an imbalance of emphasis on man's free will. And both of them are beyond our understanding entirely. But we need to reckon with both. The fifth one is the teaching of salvation without separation. 2 Corinthians 6.16, God said, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For the, you are the temple of the living God. God said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God and be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. Inferring that if there's no coming out, there's no receiving. And I will be a father unto you. You shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord. I get a little weary of people that talk about a lifestyle separation as being a Mennonite thing. It's not a Mennonite thing, it's a Bible thing. Another is the unbalanced teaching of the cross. Have you seen the little phrase, one cross plus three nails equal forgiveness? Is that right? One cross plus three nails equal forgiveness. Is that spiritual mathematics? And so what's coming through in apostate circles is basically universal salvation. Jesus died for the whole world and the whole world is going to be saved. I went to a funeral of my, one of my uncles. He lived a wicked life. My father worked with him, tried to get him to repent. As far as we know, he never repented. None of his children are Christians. I went to the funeral, and the first thing the preacher said, our dear brother John is now in the arms of Jesus. Really? And I sat there and I thought, uh, what are his children saying? If dad's with Jesus, we're all with Jesus. Say, a young man from Canada gave me a tape some time ago of a preacher in North Carolina. And he was preaching about God's great salvation. And he said that Jesus died for the whole world. And the whole world's going to get saved. There's just a lot of people who don't know it yet. And he said, I, I, believe, I, I believe that God's going to get the devil saved somehow. He said, I don't know how he's going to do it, but he's going to get it done. You see, if you have one cross and three nails equal salvation, you understand where that leads? Where's repentance? Is there salvation without repentance? See, we believe the Bible teaches two aspects of the cross. And again, to teach one without the other. The cross of Jesus Christ is extremely important. For Jesus died, suffered, shed his blood, atoned for our sins. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission. It's for what we have done. But there's the other aspect of the cross, and that's our cross. Where Jesus said, if any man come after me, let him deny himself and take up the cross. And that's death, not for what we have done, but death for what we are our own selfish desires and inclinations. I was blessed a few weeks ago in the state of Kentucky with working with a New Order Amish family. We got to talk about what we believe. And he said, we believe in salvation by the way of the cross. Do you believe in salvation by the way of the cross? Say. And so there can be Again, a balance. You can talk about the cross. And there's a difference between self-denial and denial of self. See, Jesus didn't teach self-denial. 
He taught denial of self. You know what the difference is? Well, maybe I could illustrate it. Um, how many of you ladies have automatic washers? Any ringer washers? Any ringer washers? No, huh? no ringer washers? Good, all right. I'm glad to see a ringer washer. Anybody has a scrub board? Any scrub boards? You have one, you're sort of an ornament, right? You don't use it a lot. Okay, so you have this automatic washer, and that makes it so easy. I remember the ringer washer. Say, and so you say, well, maybe God would be happier with me if I would deny myself of this automatic washer and go back to the ringer washer. And so I sell it at a yard sale, and I get me a ringer washer. Now God's happy with me. And after a while, maybe God would be happier with me if I wouldn't use this ringer washer and get the scrub board out. And so I get the scrub board out. Now God is happier with me. I'm denying myself of the automatic washer. I denied myself of the ringer washer. Now God's happy with me. I'm just denying myself. And after a while, you say, I wonder if God's still happy with me. Maybe I should just get two rocks and rub them together. And you do that for a while. And then you're still wondering, is, is God still happy with me? I've denied myself of all. He ought to be very happy with me. See, maybe God would be happy with me if I didn't even wash my clothes. <laughs> you see, you can do all that and still not deny yourself of yourself. But deny yourself is to give up your right to yourself, to your opinions, to your life. The cross of the death experience of the old carnal will and desire. Didn't we all say that when we were baptized? Didn't we all say that? Are we still there? No wonder Paul said, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified to me and I to the world. Two crucifixions in that verse. And Paul said, the preaching of the cross is of them that perish foolishness, but to what should believe it's the power of God. His testimony in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. The cross is where the human will surrenders to the will of God. That's the cross. The next one I'm thinking about, dangers of apostasy, is the influence of humanism that it's had on us. Now, humanism's been around, I guess, since the garden. But in the mid-50s, maybe before that, in thought form and writing form, but influenced the populace, is this individualism and self-expression Dr. Spock taught that children need to be able to give expression to their feelings and you don't hinder them because you might warp their mind. Now, I think as a child, uh, we weren't uh, taught, we were taught not to express a lot of our feelings. Uh, if my mother had something on the table I didn't like, we didn't dare say that. My father would not allow us to say that we didn't like something. We ate what was on our plate. Now we've got grandchildren that come to grandma's house and grandma puts something on their plate and they say, that's yucky. I don't like it. Really? Okay. And their parents, I guess, have left them express themselves.
And so, see, humanism basically says, I'm the most important person in the world. Everything revolves around me. And if you can bless me or be good, if include in my life and contribute to my life, then you're, you're a blessing. I want you in my circle. And so life revolves around me. You see, and I hear sometimes across our pulpit that God is here for you. Now, a certain truth to that, but I want to tell you, friends, we are here for God. But this matter of, you see, God is important to me because he contributes to my life. He helps me. He blesses me. I'm the most important person in the world. And everything revolves around me. That mentality is humanism. Suppression. Self hinders growth and development. Well, I talked about the likes and dislikes. But self-esteem, self-worth, self-government, self-love, they're even teachers of that thing that the Bible says that you love your neighbor as yourself. That Bible is teaching you how to love yourself. Well, we've had the purpose-driven life. Think about what John the Baptist said. Didn't he say, he must increase, I must decrease. That's the way of the cross. Another thing that contributes to apostasy is secular psychology integrated in our counseling movements. Now, I might open a can of worms here. But every, almost every many groups in our conservative circles have a counseling center or felt they need one. But there's a verse in scripture that I believe with the deepest of my heart and that's in 2 Peter 1.3. It said, According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to his glory. Do we need secular psychology? God has given us all. I've been in your circles long enough to know you already heard six times what I said all means, right? All means all, and that's all all means. And God has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. My friends, I submit to you, regardless of what the problem of the human family is, they are met by the word of God, and we don't need this psychology bit of, you know, well, you have this problem because something happened in your past. In the first six years of your life, whatever happened there has an effect on you now. And we blame whoever. I am this way, I have this struggle because my father had this struggle. And even get to the place where you need to confess the sins of your father because he never got them confessed. And I don't know if we're becoming Catholics or what, we're confessing the sins of the dead, but you need to confess the sins of your father because he never got them confessed. And that way you can be free from this bondage. Hogwash, that's a bunch of baloney. But our, some of our circles in our conservative movements are, they call it integration. One man, who many of you would know, been in your pulpit probably years ago, not lately, said that the needs of society today are that great that we need something beyond what the Bible says. And friends, if I believed that, I wouldn't even come here and waste your time or mine. Because I believe that the Bible, the Word of God, has the answers to man, all man's needs spiritually. Okay? You all right with that? Pretty weak. You all right with that? That's getting better. You're still all right with it? All right. I don't know if you see much about this one. Maybe I did touch on enough, and that is authority submission issues. Peter said, Jesus said to Peter, upon this rock I build my church, and I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. 
And whatsoever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That's a verse that has been talked about and written about and discussed. But I, I understand that it is up to the church of Jesus Christ to grapple with issues and come to decision-making as to what's acceptable and what's unacceptable in the Christian life. Maybe enough said about that. The last one I'm going to mention, I'm just entitling this, Emerging Church Ideas. Feelings and relationship overshadow doctrine. Doctrine, they say, divides. Actually, it's agreement in doctrine is what unifies. There's no true unity without an emphasis on doctrine. A unity that's not based on doctrine is superficial and shallow. Doctrine determines the quality of relationships. There's so much emphasis on feelings and, and, and relationships. Relationships are important. We'll talk about that tomorrow night. Relationships are extremely important. But relationships are not the deciding factor. Amos said, you know, how can two walk together except they be agreed? Talked to a young man some time ago, and he said, uh, I never had a good relationship with my dad. We just, just never had a good relationship. Oh? And so one time I got to talking to his father, and I said, asked the father, well, what about this relationship you had with your son? Well, he said, he would seldom listen to me. He just refused to obey. The result of emerging church ideas, emphasis on relationships, emphasis on not that relationships are not important, but on feelings is uh, basically casual Christianity. The word casual is a prefix for casualty. <laughs> and whenever we lose our love and our passion for the Bible, for the Word of God, for Jesus Christ, we just take. A bishop friend of mine was telling about a young girl that was wandering and he had an interview with her and talked to her and she said, I just want to be a casual Christian. That's a recipe for death. I'd like to close with the verse that we started with. Ye therefore, beloved, seeing that you know these things before. We've talked about these things. Be, beware, lest you also, being led away with the air of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. But grow in grace in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to whom be glory both now and forever. I say these are action words. And the question is, are you falling or are you growing? Is your church falling? Is it growing? I think it's fair for us to do some analysis in our personal life, in our church life, in our conference life. Lord bless you.